Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We're continuing our discussion of design and resistance, and joining us this week is Suzanne Lacey. Lacey is a visual artist whose prolific career includes performances, video and photographic installation, critical writing, and public practices and communities. She is best known as one of the founding mothers of a field of socially engaged art that emerged out of Los Angeles in the 1970s. However, as you'll hear in this interview, her work encompasses a multitude of themes and media. Her work ranges from intimate graphic body explorations to large-scale public performances involving literally hundreds of performers and thousands of audience members. Lacey was the founding chair of the MFA in Public Practice at the Otis College of Art and Design. She holds a Doctor of Philosophy from Gray School of Art at Robert Gordon University in Scotland, and she currently teaches at the University of Southern California Roski School of Art and Design. She's here today to talk to us about art's role in public life and to help us navigate the tricky ground between art, activism, and social practice. Let's listen in. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for lending us your time, and I, I know our audience is going to get a lot out of this. You're known for, for decades of social practice and art, but I was wondering whether we could begin with your, your sort of formative life, um, your child. You grew up in the San Joaquin Valley, and I was wondering whether there was a time, a moment, uh, a particular exchange where you knew, like, hey, these are the issues that I'm going to spend my life working on. I think the issues develop gradually from homeless animals to seeing my African-American friends being treated badly and kept out of stores when we would hang out together. I think that without understanding it at the time, my empathy that I developed and questions about equity and fairness really came out of my own experience as a woman and a working class person. As I said, these were not articulated until much later as movements came forward, the feminist movement and more class awareness in our country, you know, those kind of inchoate feelings had words applied to them through these movements. But I think the ability to move inside of another's experience, in part, for me, it, it had to do with the fact that my dad was involved in the military when the uh, Jewish camps were um, you know, Auschwitz was open, he was stationed in England. And so somehow that, plus, of course, growing up in the 50s, I would still be seeing photographs of lynchings um, in our country. So those two experiences, the Jewish experience of the Holocaust and the African-American experience of lynchings, were sort of seared into my, you know, tiny consciousness as, as examples of extreme inequity and cruelty. So I think those both looking around me when my best friend Mary Jane couldn't get into the roller skating rink with me, uh, thinking about fairness, wanting to support and take care of everybody from my little brother to everybody around me, those are childhood experiences of empathy and caretaking, which when they're supported in a familial structure, actually you know, become part of one's way of being in the world and perceiving things. That fairness and equity, uh, we seem to be in, in short supply nowadays. Perhaps you could offer a perspective about how fairness and equity presents in art or how it doesn't. Are we getting better in terms of being able to, to manifest concerns of equity in, in the art that we produce? I think that artists have always been involved with 
not all artists, of course, but they're involved with experience and part of human experience. And they're also involved with communication. So human experience is a function of one's ability to understand your own experience and empathize with others' experiences. So I think that when empathy is encouraged in children and putting yourself in the place of the other, you sort of develop an awareness of, you know, what's going on with the black kids across the playground who are hanging out in their own environments when you're a child and why aren't those children integrated more into society. So for me, the idea of thinking about the experience of others and were they treated equally is pretty pretty fundamental to my, my thinking. Do you think that artists are uniquely suited to do that because of that sort of common thread of um, empathy and, and awareness? I think there is some level of heightened sensitivity that many people I know who are artists seem to have. I've had faculty, for example, who are sort of empathically aware of what other people are thinking about them. You know, almost across the room, I can tell when I'm lecturing where energy is coming from. So I think that we're attuned to that, but how we choose to deal with that is obviously um, a choice that affects one's practice. In light of a lot of these recent sort of political developments, you know, I'm speaking of uh, Brexit, Trumpism, and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It almost mm-hmm. seems like we've sort of entered a, an age of anti-empathy, uh, you know, an age where it's it's sort of socially acceptable to to not care, to throw millions of people off of health care, to be indifferent to the earth and, and that sort of thing. But I think that that also uh, historically has engendered, you know, periods of great art um, because artists are sort of put out in front as the people that uh, – the vanguard that can really speak to these sorts of things. Do you see that happening around you and in your community? I Absolutely. And, you know, there's sort of at different points in time and in different geographic places, there are movements that come forward that deal with pressing social issues. And they are dealt with, I think, in part through the, the kind of lens of, of – what's happening around, sort of the zeitgeist. So, for example, in the 70s, there was a large movement toward interculturalism and uh, racialized, uh, you know, the kind of expression of racial class, not so much in this country class, but to some degree, class and gender differences. And as those movements came forward, artists were almost always involved with, with those movements. It's sort of with, you know, the advent of Reagan and Thatcher, and uh, through the 80s and the 90s with the art market, you know, expressing a kind of interest in the capitalism that, that fuels the art industry, those things came more to the fore. But now I think, particularly since the recession, we're seeing more and more young people who are re-engaging with issues of uh, social, what we now call social practice. I'm curious about that term, and maybe we could uh, take a minute and sort of elaborate on it. Um, I, I've observed the same thing from from the field of architecture, that since the recession, yeah. there's been this sort of renewed interest in, in the social practice of architecture. And I'm always conflicted because, you know, I think all architecture and, and all art, frankly, is social in some nature, right? I mean, it has some intrinsic political dimension. Yes, uh, yes, but it's not always spoken. It's not always recognized. So to do something that is, uh, I mean, you know, architecture went through this huge movement of the kind of hero architect and the sort of iconic self-expression. So, I, I, I mean, I think that 
that's still there in architecture, but I think architects are really embracing what's already been a vanguard of visual art, and that has to do with this sort of notion of community engagement. Architecture is social um, always because it, you know, people inhabit its spaces. But when you look at, for example, you know about the tilted art art mm-hmm. in New York and Richard Serra, and that was a direct statement by an artist coming from the sort of valorization of the right to express in response to the Jacob Javits building and the architect architectural practices of that time and their sort of assignment of, of the right to individually express or identity onto their work. So that's kind of like the titans clashing in visual arts and architecture around the notion of individual expression. I think architects have always, if you look at the history, they've always explored these issues, just like designers have always explored the issues of pedagogy, engagement, equity issues, and so forth. And I think we're in a moment now when that's becoming especially relevant and salient in in all of our practices. Let's expand on that a little bit because, you know, as we've been sort of asking this question, you know, can you design resistance? A lot of what we found is that people have done that continually. Trump may exist as a sort of avatar of certain systems that that we can all sort of gather around and be concerned about. But the systems have existed for decades or even centuries. So what should we be doing differently, if anything? Or does it just uh, an increased sense of urgency? I don't know about differently. I think it's a progression of, of thinking that leads one to do certain kind of practices. So, you know, if you look at Ramlebor in uh, Germany, they really consciously took on this issue of engagement. And, you know, underlying to some degree is the issue of equity. But I think from what little I know, I've worked with them a bit, and what little I know about them is that their practice really extends into uh, the kind of notion of engagement as opposed to the notion of equity, although they are linked. But I think that what we should be doing is simply you know what I what I do with my students is talk to them uh, about staying in touch with current events, deconstructing their own assumptions. Even on the radical side of my students, there's a lot of assumptions of what you know. They'll say we want to engage these people, but they have no concept of how you really enter a relevant engagement with whoever these people are. So I think that's the learning trajectory of what is engagement, what is equity, how is that expressed through the art and design professions, and and our continuing evolution of that discourse. I don't think, for me, that certainly doesn't say that we shouldn't be doing other kinds of things. So I don't have a problem with monolithic monumental architecture as long as it, it, you know, with a kind of self-expressive gesture, as long as it's within a context of a lot of other discourse. So I think that the range of what's available to artists and creative practitioners should be a kind of open field. But what I say to my students is you need to know what that field really is. and You need to continually question your own position within it. Where does your practice begin with engagement? I mean, your work is is known for involving hundreds and sometimes thousands of, of people in installations and performances. As you're teaching your own students, um, how do you get them started? How do you get them thinking about the right process of engagement? I think there's two things. I think there's why you're doing what you want to do and articulating what you want to do, and then there's the strategies to get it done. So with students, we tend to start talking about issues of identity, where they come from, 
what it means where they come from, how they class, for example, is quite hidden in, I mean, it's now obviously becoming exposed with occupation and the 1% movement and so on. I mean, what we're really dealing with right now in the United States is the awareness of class emerging in a much more conscious way into our cultural discourse. But generally, students positioning themselves at one place or other along the identity issue, is a, uh, the identity spectrum, or the opportunity, you know, you have multiple identities, but which ones do you sort of begin to articulate and looking at what is the meaning of that class or that identity, you know, within their political and, and social context. For example, when I was a child, I know that one of the reasons I was interested, I know now, one of the reasons I was interested in issues of oppression had to do with the fact that I was a woman. And I didn't know it then because there was no feminism to articulate it. I was also working class. And so very subtly, I could understand why the guy, I mean, I couldn't understand, but I was aware that the guys got to do things I didn't get to do. Or, you know, people across town had a different amount of money or different access to clothes, cars, whatever, than I had. And so you, you pick up those sort of subtle cues in your experience that create an identity or aspects of your identity, expressed or unexpressed, that when they're later interrogated become positions from which you may want to operate. Generally, students attracted to me, for example, are students that, quote, want to make a difference. They probably don't know what the difference is, and they probably don't know how to do it, but they at least come with some kind of notion that things aren't right in the world. So that's sort of considering the, the position from which you operate and what it is you might want to do. Then the next question is, how do you create strategies that allow people to enter the arenas of popular social political culture that they want to interrogate? And what's an example of, of one of those strategies? Well, for example, a student yesterday, she wants to work with the homeless. And it comes very specifically, I think, from her experience as a child of an immigrant from Southeast Asia and a kind of awareness as she grew up and went through the public school system, awareness of different and equity issues that sort of became more and more prominent in her thinking as she entered, you know, USC, which is a very well-endowed and, and um, you know, prestigious university. And so for her, she's began to think about homelessness. Well, because she has also this sort of engagement in protest, just sort of in her bones, she began to think about, well, let's have homeless people and the audience for their self-expression will be the police. So we have to then kind of deconstruct what would the experience of homeless people be in confrontation with the police. How do you get police to the table? What kind of discourse do you really want to promote? Are police the best audiences? Because what she's bringing in is conflicting pieces of her own response to inequity without being able to kind of understand the implication yet. That's the learning process. The implications of what aspects of her identity she's expressing. So the anger, the protest is, is seen in one sort of image and the, the empathy and the 
desire to nurture and support voice is seen in the other part of her imagery, but the reconciliation of those two might not be appropriate for one or the other. In other words, it might be dangerous to put homeless people in front of police. So in working through those, what are essentially are ethical dilemmas, in working through those and thinking about those and finding out, you know, finding out who a cop is and who a homeless person is and how they see their world, she empathically and, the, and through research begins to engage with those different worlds. And in doing so, she continues to refine the construction of her artwork. And do you find that this sort of empathy is something that kids uh, come into school with, or is it something that's activated within I think, within I think the if you look at the number of kids that want to be vegetarians when they first figure out that their baby lamb is slaughtered to make lamb chops. <laughs> a baby lamb, yeah. <laughs> I think that empathy is a natural part of children who aren't super abused. Yeah. And I think teaching kids how to take, like for me it was with animals, homeless animals just tore me up. Somehow in my personal familial environment, it wasn't a concrete, you know, animals are like kids from across the, the railroad tracks, but it was something in perhaps even my own parents' ability to listen to me, to kind of engage with my reality. But somehow I learned from, I think, my familial situation to engage in other people's realities or to at least be curious about them. And I think a lot of the closing of the American mind at this point is, is fear-based, and it has to do with not wanting to, not being exposed to difference, not wanting to cross that empathic space from your own need and your own fears and your own self-interest into another person's needs and self-interest. It does seem like there's something structural that sort of programs the empathy out of children. I'm not sure like where that begins, but that, that seems right, that there's something fear-based that, that teaches us not to bridge that gap. You're listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you've been enjoying our conversation with Suzanne Lacey, but we're taking a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how to connect with existing social movements and the fine line between activism and aesthetic production. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Suzanne Lacey about the origins of her practice in pedagogy. Coming up, we're going to be talking about yours. Let's rejoin the conversation. I'd like to turn the, the interview towards, you know, this, this very sort of topical but not topical issue, um, the sort of string of sexual assault, sexual abuse allegations that seem overly familiar to so many of us and yet somehow seem to shock the conscience at the same time. How does art and how do specifically young artists position themselves to comment on this sort of thing and um, take a stand against it? Well, there are a lot of positions or platforms that are being provided to people like the hashtag MeToo. So if somebody wants to participate, you can participate in, a, let's say, just in sexual harassment issues. You can participate in any kind of social movement platform, and I've always been connected to and I think it's critical for artists, architects, and designers to be connected to 
various social movements they that are relevant to the constituencies that they want to engage with, like what I do a project in Oakland at this point in time with teenagers, teenagers often teenagers of color and working class kids. Would I ever do that without knowing what Black Lives Matter was thinking and doing in that environment? No way. Yeah. So connecting to movements is one possibility of, of intervention engagement, and that might find its way back to your practice. I mean, it's, it would be different for the different, um, you know, architecture, design, and fine art. It, those would all be different, right? Yeah. You know, design is basically problem solving, which is different than a fine art production. A fine art production starts from a kind of much more associative relationship, in the case of social practice, between problem, personal positioning and identity, and aesthetic production. That's sort of the parameters within which you operate. So we're much less, um, although people think the the, the problem with social practices is too much like design, because the presumption is we're problem solving. And of course, I think we're not. We're you know, we're pushing a boulder toward a different way of understanding one's, oneself and, and potentially even shaping politics in people's lives. But I think designers, if you wanted, as a graphic designer, for example, you would, you would go work with a domestic violence shelter. Hmm. Or you would, you know, you would create a campaign on sexual harassment. But when a designer decides to do, you know, what's more like a fine arts practice, which is, I'm going to make my statement the way I feel it, the way I want to, and it may be a little bit of a stretch between what I want and the problem I'm purporting to solve. And that's, I think, what fine artists do. I was thinking about, you know, art's um, intrinsic uh, ability to to raise and change consciousness. And I think one of the, the critical observations of, you know, our time is that, you know, certain things are being exposed and and carried in the news as, as if they're sort of shocking, you know, like it shouldn't shock us that every woman that I know has been the victim of uh, sexual discrimination or sexual assault or, or something like that. And yet with hashtag activism, it, it becomes this sort of sudden reveal. And I wonder what role, you know, art and, and fine art uh, has to play in terms of saying, look, this is the way the world is. Let's speak about it honestly. Let's not act shocked when Nazis descend on Charlottesville because the Nazis were always there. Well, an artist who is politically informed would not be shocked. And I think a lot of this shock that you're talking about has to do with how close people are to certain kinds of political issues. Like if you've been reading for the last 40 years about sexual trafficking and you followed Anita Hill or you read historically about Anita Hill, this today would not shock you, right? Right. So I'm I'm not responding to the shock value that you're the shock issue right now, but I will respond to more the issue of how can you play a role. Those are two different things for me. So how you can play a role is, as I said, you can, as a fine artist, you can say I'm I'm going to make an artwork around that, and then there's a variety of ways you can enter that experience. And part of being a fine artist that isn't really covered in the field is much better covered in design and architecture is who is your audience. So fine artists tend to create and assume a universal audience and a universal exhibition space, which is usually a white cube, although that's not true of social practice. Designers think about who is my audience. 
and how will they receive this information. And where it goes, whether it's in a magazine online, is something that they articulate more clearly than fine artists do. So if I was a designer and I wanted to do something now, the question would be how do you align with a movement and and the issues of a movement? How do you deal with individual voice? Who is your audience and therefore what do you want to do? What kind of change do you want to evoke, even if it's just a change of perception in that audience? Hmm. That's a beautiful statement. Suzanne, uh, what keeps you going, um, you know, after decades of, of doing this social practice? Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the issue of social, you know, it's the issue of making. Okay. I could happily make anything. I could make arrangements with the leftover food on my plate. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the reason years ago I decided, you know, I came out of a pre-med training and was going to be a psychiatrist. I have quite a bit of education, like something like seven years in that direction. But I think that what attracted me to and has kept me in creative practice, whether it's design, and I've worked with a lot of incredible designers, you know, or architecture, fine arts, what's kept me engaged is the translation of kind of both internal psychological issues with social, and for me, that would be social equity issues with making. And I figured out a long time ago that the renewability of the creative process, the fact that I can get excited by rearranging the food on my plate, is what's going to keep me engaged with what is otherwise some fairly depressing issues. So my upbringing was solid enough and my ecostructure strong enough that I can deal with really serious issues of violence. Fortunately, and probably this is one of the reasons I can deal with it, I haven't experienced that level of sexual violence. That doesn't mean I haven't had harassment. Like I, like we agreed in the beginning, every woman you know has mm. experienced sexual harassment past a certain age. But I can deal with these issues and what keeps me going on them, even when, for example, Trump is elected and you know, it looks like everything we fought for for 30 years is being very rapidly dismantled. But I can keep going because I have so much pleasure in the creative process, in making. And for me, that's making and framing an interaction. It's making and framing multiple interactions addressed to a public with the application of what I would consider more design or anthropologically oriented sort of thinking systems if you add that to creative expression, then you end up with work that looks like social practice. You mentioned between the door and the street, and that process came out of looking and looking and looking at what the different, like over 100 organizations were, um, how they were operating that were largely women-centered. What were they thinking about? How did they intersect with each other? And did they relate to feminism in the way in 2015 and the way that I was introduced to it in, you know, 1970. What's the similarities? What's the progression of discourse? What's the differences? So that's what that project came out of. But the image of the stoops was walking down the streets in Brooklyn and boom, the image of people on stoops. And then that gets developed with the political and social issues. Who are these people? Can they sit on steps? What does it mean to sit on these steps on this street instead of those steps on that street? 
what's the aesthetic framing, where the trees look like, do you need the whole block or part of a block, do you need every stoop or three stoops, those are aesthetic issues. So in those things, you take an image and those things are played off against aesthetic development as well as political development, then you end up with, you know, a social practice work. Suzanne, that is is powerful and and inspiring, and I think um, a great place to close. And I hope that all of our listeners really take that to heart. And we'll feature that project as well as all your others on our website. So you can go there and and check that out um, for further research. But thank you so much for your time um, and for sharing your, your wisdom with our audience. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We'd like to thank our guest of the week, Suzanne Lacey, for her thoughtful observations on empathy, art, and activism. Next week, as we continue our conversation on resistance, we're moving down to the Big Easy, New Orleans, Louisiana, to talk with Coloquate Design about how to design place before politics and the preservation of culture before capital. We hope you'll tune into that. For more on Suzanne Lacey and her work, you can check out her book, Mapping the Terrain, New Genre Public Art now in its third printing and available in both English and Chinese languages. Also consider Leaving Art, Performances, Politics, and Publics, The Collected Essays of Suzanne Lacey, published in 2010 by Duke University Press. We'll link to both at our website at socialdesigninsights.com. There you'll also find some further examples of her work and a few links to further your research. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Currystone Design Prize and the Currystone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all the latest news on social impact design.